Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Happy holidays to you all and welcome to episode 9. Today we're travelling back in time to 1883 to join Otto von Spee of Heidelberg for an exciting Christmas Eve as he gives his lecture on dynamite. And here's Paul with an introduction. After a successful and inadvertently eventful student career at Heidelberg, he had Dr Otto von Spee, expert in explosives, had settled down to a peaceful life as a private tutor and research scientist in Berlin. However, his peace is shattered one wild and tempestuous Christmas Eve when he is called out unwillingly on an emergency medical errand which results in an impromptu lecture to a particularly dangerous audience. So the full title of the story is An Exciting Christmas Eve or My Lecture on Dynamite and it was first published in the Boys' Own paper in December 1883 and republished in Every Boys' Monthly in February-March 1905. After that, it virtually disappeared until it was reproduced in the uncollected Conan Doyle by Gibson and Green in 1982. The story was actually written 18 months earlier in the summer of 1882, which is a significant date in the life of Conan Doyle, because that's when he set up medical practice in Southsea. And it was long believed that the story was actually written in summer 1883, uh, largely because of a newspaper report that appeared in the Hampshire Telegraph of the 2nd of May 1883, uh, which describes an incident that very closely resembles the events of an exciting Christmas Eve. The article uh, is headed, Dynamite Explosion at a Lecture. Whilst Mr. Allen, borough analyst, was lecturing at Firth College Sheffield on the chemistry of explosives, he made a number of experiments with nitroglycerin. He placed a thimbleful of dynamite in a bucket of water and applied it to a fuse. The explosion which ensued was so powerful that the bucket was smashed and some of the people saturated with water and greatly frightened by the report. A portion of the audience left the building. I think the fact that only a portion left the building <laughs> is perhaps indicative of the uh, British stiff upper lip at the time. The story, though, uh, was indeed written around uh, summer 1882 because we know that Conan Doyle submitted it to the Belgravia towards the end of September and uh, was chasing whether or not the story was going to be published in the November of 1882. And it's not uh, unusual for many of Conan Doyle's early short stories to have been hawked around in this way. He seems to have had a pecking order that he started with the high prestige journals and then progressively worked his way uh, down until he could find somebody who was prepared to take the, uh, the story. And in this case, it was the boy's own paper, which had been formed as an offshoot of the Religious Tract Society in 1878, as a, a vehicle for instilling Christian morals into uh, into young children. The paper actually ran until 1967, 
Um, and the content was a mixture of adventure stories and improving articles, uh, puzzles, and uh, a fair fair amount of jingoism as well. And the writers included uh, Jules Verne, uh, Ballantyne, Baden-Powell, uh, and uh, according to Andrew Lysett, it often published General Drayson. And you get a real sense from this story and others around this time that we've covered previously, like The Winning Shot and The Captain of the Pole Star, that Conan Doyle was really trying things out. He was experimenting with his craft. Um, and he referred to many of these short stories pejoratively in, in later years, uh, describing them really as a, apprentice work. And the story came out at a time when there was heightened international terrorism. Uh, yeah, in this um, particular period, the, the 1880s through into the 1890s, there had been uh, uh, an increase in various kinds of, of, of terrorist activity um, from a, an, an assortment of, of groups and, and mo- motives. Doyle himself had picked up on this earlier. Uh, in 1881, he'd published a story called A Night Among the Nihilists, which is about the, uh, the adventures of an English trade envoy um, who managed to get himself accidentally mixed up in nihilist activities in Russia. Hmm. Yeah, at this time, Russia was regarded as being at the, the center of, of these kinds of activities, um, particularly from the uh, or during the reigns of Nicholas I, uh, who reigned between 1825, 1855, uh, and Alexander II, 1855 to 1881. Um, there, there emerged first a group known as the Narodniki, uh, the populists. There was a series of, of roundups and, and show trials with them, and so the movement petered rather. Hmm. Um, but the, the real hardcore coalesced, uh, and a new revolutionary party came out of this, known as Zemlya Ivolya, Land and Liberty. Um, and their main aim was peasant insurrection, uh, but their tactics included um, attacks and assassinations. And it was one of their splinter groups, uh, Narodnaya Volya, the People's Will, who actually assassinated Tsar Alexander II in 1881. Mm. Um, and this was the year that, that um, Doyle published A Night Among the Nihilists. Uh, it was a real moment, uh, obviously, of, of uh, international attention uh, being, being paid to, um, to, to these activities. The assassination of Alexander II and the accession of his son Alexander III uh, saw a movement of um, exiles out of Russia as the Tsarist authorities um, came down on these groups with an iron fist. Mm. Uh, And so a number of these these political exiles moved into the West and quite a number actually came to London. It created a, a, a cultural moment um, where uh, the awareness of, of these exiles was picked up on by the by the London press um, and writers like Doyle also picked up on on this this kind of secret society sort of element um, finding their way in, in, into London mm. um, and and also on the back of this uh, as well as the political. Uh, refugees. This is the period of, of, of pogroms in Eastern Europe. So there's, there's a great movement of, of Eastern European Jewish refugees as well. And, and as a num- large number of those are coming into London as well. Mm. So it's creating a, a, an atmosphere which the, the British press, as is their way, whipped up rather. Mm. Uh, and th- there's also, to, to, to add to that, 
stories and rumours of, of the Tsarist secret police, the Okhrana, yes. uh, also being active in London in the 1880s. I mean, this is one of the craziest rumours is that the uh, the Jack the Ripper murders were <laughs> actually a, a plot by the Okhrana to destabilise the Metropolitan Police. Mm. Mm. And one of the things that is fueling that uh, um, anxiety and heightened tension was, in fact, the invention of dynamite, which had been uh, patented by Alfred Nobel, the the Peace Prize man, um, in 1867. Uh, and that suddenly meant that a really powerful explosive was more widely available and it was portable and people could use it. And that, that naturally fed into the emerging Fenian threat. Yeah, the Fenians were um, a, a group of I- Irish nationalists fighting for, for an independent uh, Ireland. Um, and their first wave of bombing activities in in London actually occurred um, between 1867 um, and 1868. Mm. Um, There was actually um, the the, the most spectacular was the bombing of Clerkenwell Prison in London in in 1867. Um, And it's it's interesting, um, Conan Doyle in 1886 publishes a story called Touch and Go, a midshipman's story, Mm. uh, which is about the adventures of three Scottish school children who who find themselves lost at sea um, in in a a prank adventure on a boat. Uh, And they have to be rescued by a a ship which is actually carrying uh, the Fenian leader, James Stevens, uh, into exile on, on the continent. And the interesting thing is Conan Doyle presents uh, a sympathetic picture of, of Stevens. Uh, th- this is no foaming-mouthed fanatic. And there was a second wave of Fenian activity into the uh, 1880s. Yeah, the 1880s was, was a particularly uh, active time for them, and a number of uh, high-profile attacks uh, in London, again, on uh, particularly on Westminster Bridge and Scotland Yard itself, uh, was was uh, attacked and the um, the office of Inspector John Littlechild was the head of the newly established Metropolitan Police Special Branch, mm. which had actually been established to combat uh, Fenian terrorism in particular. Um, so to, to actually destroy his office was quite a coup. Um, fortunately for Littlechild, he was out of it at the time. Yeah. And the Fenian threat is reflected in some of the works at the time. You have... Uh... Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, sequel to New Arabian Nights, More New Arabian Nights, The Dynamiter, came out in 1885. That's um, notable for Sherlock Holmes fans in that it has a story uh, called uh, The Story of the Destroying Angel, which is often cited as the inspiration for the Mormon section of A Study in Scarlet. And the other notable figure who is writing on this topic at, uh, at this time is Oscar Wilde, who wrote his very first play, Vera, uh, or The Nihilists, yeah, um, he seems to have written this in about 1880, um, and it, it was going to be premiered in 1881 in London, but was 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 pulled because of the assassination of uh, Tsar Alexander II. It was actually performed in America in 1883, but wasn't particularly successful. Um, the story itself is supposed to be set around 1800, so nihilism as an idea is is anachronistic. Mm. The phrase nihilist seems to have been coined in 1861 by Ivan Turgenev in his novel Fathers and Sons. Um, Wilde had actually taken his inspiration for the character Vera Sabarov uh, from the uh, actual would-be assassin Vera Zazulich, uh, who on the 24th of January 1878 had wandered 
into the office of the police chief of uh, St. Petersburg, General Fyodor Fyodorovich Trepov, um, and shot him. Um, he survived the assassination attempt, um, and Zazulich was, was uh, subsequently tried uh, and acquitted by a jury and spirited out of Russia uh, mm-hmm. and became something of a heroine, and, and Wilde obviously picked up on this uh, for his play. And it's from this that we get the Sherlock Holmes reference to the Trepov murders. Yeah, um, this is one of the, the, the throwaway comments in A Scandal in Bohemia, uh, when when Watson returns to Baker Street um, and says, from time to time, I had heard some vague account of his doings, of his summons to Odessa in the case of the Trepoff murder. So uh, mm-hmm. I don't know whether, whether Conador's get mixed up and hadn't realised that Trepoff survived, but nevertheless, it is this this uh, interesting use of the same um, cultural historical material. Mm. So let's take a look at the story in some detail now. And uh, in keeping with many of the early short stories of Conan Doyle, there are several semi-autobiographical elements in in this story. Um, The most obvious is the Central European setting, which seems to draw on Conan Doyle's time as a student in Feldkirch in uh, Western Austria, um, not far from the border with with Switzerland. He spent uh, a year there at uh, Stella Matutina, which was a Jesuit school, and he concluded his studies there about six years before writing this uh, this story. And Owen Dudley Edwards, in his book The Quest for Sherlock Holmes, says that Conan Doyle's time at Falkirk was a pivotal moment in his intellectual development, and he, he cites this as a, a great period of inspiration, helping Conan Doyle to develop uh, more speculative ways of thinking, but also citing perhaps a dislike of bureaucracy, which is reflected in the Scotland Yarders in the Sherlock Holmes stories, and also a suggestion that it was uh, at this time that Conan Doyle first read the works of Edgar Allan Poe. But the Central European setting is not just restricted to an exciting Christmas Eve. There are also other stories around that time that could be set in uh, in places very similar to Felkirk. Yeah, there, there are three in particular. Um, one is, is a kind of um, horror story uh, called The Silver Hatchet, uh, which was published in London Society in 1883. Um, there's a, a more comedic story, the Great Kineplatz Experiment, uh, very much a, a German student story. That was published in the Belgravia magazine in 1885. Uh, and then another horror story, um, which was, was called A Pastoral Horror, uh, which was published in The People in 1890, but was actually written about 1884 uh, and went under the, uh, the title originally of, of The Man with the Mattock. Um, and was replaced with the far better uh, and wonderfully ambiguous uh, a pastoral horror. Mm. And student life is very much part of the framing sequence of an exciting Christmas Eve. You get Otto von Spee talking about his time as a student, and he makes reference in that opening sequence to uh, another individual, Leopold Volderich, who is uh, Otto's friend, who is said to be um, a man professed to be fond of adventure, in comparison to Otto von Spee, who is quiet, studious, and unassuming. Um, it's said that uh, Leopold is impetuous, reckless, and idle, and uh, one can't help but think that this might be a casual reference to, to Bud, um, Conan Doyle's fellow student at Edinburgh, uh, with whom he just separated to form his own medical practice in, in Southsea. Yeah, and, and um, that that, uh, that identification might be, be further confirmed by uh, the fact that he, he um, wrote another short story called Crab's Practice, which was published in 1884, mm. uh, which is definitely based upon his adventures with, uh, with, with George Budd. Mm. 
It should be said at this point as well that uh, we've come across the name Von Spee before because there's a casual reference to uh, Gustav Von Spee in The Winning Shot, which we featured in episode two of the podcast, and that came out in July 1883. There, in that, the, um, the mesmeric vampire uh, Octavius Gaster is uh, arguing on the existence of the mind separate from the body and states, uh, did not Gustav von Spee meet his brother Leopold in the streets of Strasbourg, the same brother having been drowned three months before in the Pacific? So there you get the names von Spee and Leopold reappearing in, in, uh, in both The Winning Shot and in An Exciting Christmas Eve, which were almost certainly written around the same time. And there's another interesting aside that uh, might place this very much in the early days of Conan Doyle's life in Southsea, there's a, a tacit reference to the fact that von Spee had originally set out in private practice and then changed career. He says that, uh, for some years I pursued this plan, but I found that my practice being largely among the lower classes favoured my unfortunate propensity for getting into trouble and I determined to abandon it. And um, there's almost a, a, a tacit reference there to uh, Conan Doyle thinking about abandoning his uh, his medical practice. We know that actually when he set up in Southsea beginning of July 1882, he really didn't get many patients until about October the same year. Uh, and you can almost see the sort of thinking in 1882 that is then replicated in uh, in the early 1890s when Conan Doyle finally decides to put aside his medical practice and, and take up his writing pen full time. And the student life also provides some overt moments of comedy which give this story a particularly peculiar tone. Yes, it's um, considering the subject matter that uh, it's it's ultimately going to be a, a story about um, nihilists and 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 anarchists and bomb outrages and explosives and so on. It, it strikes an uneasy comic tone, mm. um, and and it doesn't seem to quite know what it wants to be. This story, whether it wants to be an outright um, slapstick farce, almost. Mm. Or is is there a point being made about uh, the sort of people who who populate these these uh, terrorist groups? Mm. Uh, and there's also something with with the narrator himself. He's he's a a serious scientist, uh, but he's also an idiot. Yes, um, it's it's this you you don't know how to take this character because he he's 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 very clever but he's he's a damn fool at the same time and and, and you get this in a, a number of 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 Doyle's stories at this this time again the, the um the narrator Hammond in that little square box mm. uh, he's an overly serious character and doesn't realize what a fool he's being on this this uh, this this journey where he he, he thinks he's encountering a, a pair of terrorists um and the story turns out very much not mm-hmm. um or john McVitie um in the man from archangel who is, is a total misanthrope takes himself very seriously um and interestingly like von spee is is, is a misanthropic um chemist mm. Yeah, I, I mean, there there is a sense in which this main character is is completely oblivious to what's going on around him. There's a very strong vein of what we would call porky humour, um, but also uh, of slapstick, as you say. And uh, he he does seem to be quite oblivious to it. He mentions how he served time during the Franco-Prussian War, and the only thing he succeeded in doing was breaking his arm by tumbling over a stretcher. 
um, he he talks about uh, his housekeeper having been blown up three separate times. And uh, there's even one moment where he is uh, uh, he's in conversation with one of these would-be anarchists when he hears that his servant is listening at the door. At this moment, before I could move hand or foot, there was a succession of tremendous bumps, followed by a terrible crash and a prolonged scream. It was evident that my unhappy domestic had fallen downstairs in her attempt to avoid detection. I mean, he's completely <laughs> completely unaware of all of this stuff going on around him. It just sort of happens. And I wonder if um, the story might have originally been intended for the stage, because some of the humor in it is actually is is very very visual but the sort of first half where you get more of these slapstick incidences sort of dissipate in the in the second half there are far fewer of them uh the the further we get on to into the story and the more we get to the lecture on dynamite yes and i mean as you say they they dissipate and, until the end when there's 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 one massive prat fall yeah absolutely <laughs> And Conan Doyle has a lot of fun with the um, female figure who comes to entreat von Spee to leave his house on this rainy Christmas Eve and, and uh, visit uh, her husband, who is supposedly desperately unwell. The woman is described as being covered by a thick, dark veil and her dress of a same sombre colour, so uh, he'd concluded that uh, she was a, a, a widow. Um, she then is in the room when... Um, von Spee accidentally explodes a small submarine mine um, and uh, von Spee notes uh, oh she has the nerves of a grenadier and then the next time we see her she is uh, essentially bundling him into the, the back of a cab and she's described as a Herculean female and naturally enough towards the end um, yeah, von Spee says uh, I had several times doubted the sex of the individual who had seduced me from my comfortable home but the veil had now been removed and revealed a dark moustache and sunburnt countenance with a pair of searching sinister eyes which seemed to look into my very soul well, Once more Conan Doyle using uh, using drag as, as, uh, as we, we discussed in uh, episode 5 on the uh, the moment the watches um, <laughs> yeah. But the, the, the whole uh, the whole comic element of, of uh, or the, the, the semi comic element of the the kidnapping and the bundling into into the uh, the carriage of, of von Spee by this burly burly female, suppose mm. it, um, is it's it's an interesting precursor of, of, of more serious kidnappings that we'll find mm. in, in the Sherlockian canon uh, when when Mister Milas is is kidnapped in the Greek Interpreter or. Mr. Warren is bundled into a cab in the Red Circle. Mm. And both of those involve um, sort of European secret agencies as well, mm. which was a common preoccupation of Conan Doyle, <laughs> going right back to, well, not just European, but international with, mm. in the sense of the Mormons back in studying mm. Scarlet again. Mm. And the abduction of von Spee is mirrored several times in other works by Conan Doyle. You have um, the case of Lady Sanex, where Douglas Stone is, is called out late at night uh, to attend to a, a patient, you have um, uh, the third generation in Round the Red Lamp, and then you almost get the reverse of the situation in in the Dying Detective when Watson is this time sent out to get uh, Culverton Smith uh, to come and uh, visit Holmes in his in his hour of need. Mm. And once von Spee is bundled into the back of the cab, he is uh, taken through the streets of Berlin to a a secret rendezvous spot. Um, uh, unfortunately, he doesn't have the same acumen as uh, Sherlock Holmes to be able to work out 
the direction in which he's been taken, as uh, as Holmes does in the Greek Interpreter. But when von Spee arrives at his destination, he realizes he's in very unusual company indeed. Yes, he, he seems to have arrived in quite a quite an opulent location, mm. um, and and there's a, a kind of mini art gallery he's left in at first. <laughs> Uh, and this this is when he he gets a real inkling of 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 who whose guest he has become mm. um where he looks at the, uh, the 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 pictures and the artwork and 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 the subject matter and and looks and says there was the lunatic Staps in the garden making his attempt upon the life of the first napoleon above it was a sketch of orsini with his cowardly bomb waiting silently among the loungers at the opera a statuette of ravaillac was placed upon a pedestal in the corner while a large oil painting of the strangling of the unhappy Emperor Paul in his bedchamber occupied the whole of one wall of the apartment. Um, so the, these incidents, again, this, this shows Conan Doyle. It's, it's an odd thing because, again, for an ostensibly comic story, mm. he's been doing his research. Mm. Um, and he's showing off his research uh, with this. So he, he's got the, the the first figure mentioned, the lunatic Staps, is... is um, uh, Frederick Stapps, or Friedrich Stapps, uh, who was an 18-year-old Saxon um, who, for, for religio-nationalist reasons, uh, attempted to assassinate uh, Napoleon mm. um, at a review at Schönbrunn um, in October 1809. Um, but he was caught because he was agi- his agitated state attracted the attention of, of Marshal Berthier and General Rapp, mm. who arrested him, uh, and he was later executed. Um, Felice Orsini um, was an Italian nationalist and, and um, international revolutionary who attempted to assassinate uh, the Emperor Napoleon III outside the Paris Opera in January 1858. Um, his bombs caused mayhem amongst the Emperor's escort and, and the waiting crowd, uh, but the Emperor escaped virtually unscathed. Um, Orsini was arrested and in March beheaded by guillotine. Mm. Um, you've then got uh, Francois Ravaillac uh, was a Catholic zealot who, who stabbed the French king Henri IV uh, to death in Paris on 14th May 1610, um, Henri having been the king who, who um, passed the Edict of Nantes. Mm. Um, and we'll get to the revocation of the Edict of Nantes when we get to the refugees. <laughs> Indeed, that's that's on the horizon. Um, and finally, you got Tsar Paul I, who was um, a decidedly eccentric ruler, um, <laughs> who was stunned and strangled by officers of the Semyonovsky Regiment in March 1801, um, with, with tacit help from the Tsar's son Alexander, who became Tsar Alexander I um, after Paul had been murdered by his own officers. Mm. So Doyle's really, he's really um, he's dug about in in history to to find these these rather interesting examples. Yeah, and then you get the actual characters themselves, the people who are attending this uh, this this secret lecture, um, and there's a real mixture of nationalities and uh, and languages, um, social strata. I think there's references to to military figures. It's uh, it's it's quite an international. Yeah, you you've got a, a, a mix of 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 people. It starts with the the kind of the, the popular image of of the um, the, the everyday bomb chucking anarchist. Mm. Uh, he sees you know glancing round, I could see the majority of the company were dressed as artisans or laborers. Yeah, and then he notices some more fashionably attired gents and and military officers. Uh, which again plays on this this idea that that um, you were the anarchists being manipulated 
um, by uh, by elements within society for their own reasons. Mm-hmm. And then he goes into a description of the of the nationalities present. Yeah, and this is um, shows very much Conan Doyle's sort of interest in in um, you know, this very late nineteenth century, early twentieth century idea of, of, of um, geneticism and and the mm. theories of. of the Italian criminologist uh, Cesare Lombroso, for instance, mm. um, and he, he says of, of the audience, I could distinguish the dolicocephalic head of the Teuton, the round curl-covered cranium of the Celt, and the prognathous jaw and savage features of the Slavs, so <laughs> stereotyping all the way. Um, and <laughs> interestingly, you've got very specifically the, the Slavs, so tying into the, the, the Russian nihilists, and then the, the, the curl-covered cranium of the Celt is obviously going to be a reference to the, uh, to the Fenians. Mm. Um, and he picks out one particular member of the audience, um, a stoutish individual of a well-marked Celtic type who has a florid countenance and is prone to extravagant gestures. Um, he's uh, obviously a Fenian. Yeah. And, you know, von Spee is asked to speak somewhat slowly slowly and distinctly as some of his hearers are but imperfectly acquainted with the german language so there's definitely a uh, an international uh, community of anarchists um, uh, attending this lecture i mean one wonders if this is a forerunner of spectre um, <laughs> this, this uh, organization of terrorists and uh, and assassins and the whole setup does feel rather absurd. Yeah, it, it um, fits into uh, what 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 you could almost term a, a, a subgenre of, of absurdist anarchist stories, which were <laughs> um, being being published at, at this time. Um, so you, you you've got um, Conan Doyle doing the, uh, the 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 exciting Christmas Eve, uh, and then uh, two years after that, um, Robert Louis Stevenson. Um, together with his wife uh, Fanny Stevenson, uh, wrote this the, uh, the the Dynamiter, which which has the, uh, the the frightening yet rather ridiculous figure of of of, of Zero, the bomb maker, yes, um, who who lives in the superfluous mansion and eventually blows it up almost by accident. Yes. Um, but he has his sidekick Maguire, which this point Zero and Maguire with that name, they're they're obviously again meant to be Fenians. Mm. And Stevenson himself was a Unionist and had little time for the, for the the Fenians. Mm. Um, and Maguire himself, there's a, 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 a comic interlude describing him trying to get rid of a, a bomb he's carrying around and it, it's almost like adam west in the the batman movie you know, <laughs> some days you just can't get rid of a bomb um so stevenson's having a lot of fun with that um 1887 oscar wilde again um has uh, lord arthur savile's crime yes. where, where where a fake um chiromancer tells lord arthur savile that he's going to commit a murder so lord arthur savile has to pick who he's going to murder um and and one of the plots he try he goes along to the the anarchist german bomb maker herr winkelkopf <laughs> who's a specialist at making um, making clock bombs um, and and Lord Arthur wants to send this to the Dean of Chichester, um, and it, it fails. It just does the the classic foot and goes out. Then 1908, one of the real classics of, of the whole genre, the man who was Thursday. Uh, by yes, G.K. Chesterton, yes. in which uh, uh, an anarchist uh, conspiracy and an anarchist uh, committee is, is is made up of of secret policemen who 
only find out bit by bit that they're all secret policemen. Yes. Um, so uh, it's the whole thing is, is seen as as as, as ridiculous. Um, and and a, a relatively late entry, uh, Jack London's The Assassination Bureau, which which he, he never actually finished. To come back to uh, Lord Arthur Savile's crime, uh, we know that that uh, Conan Doyle was was uh, an admirer of, of Oscar Wilde's work, mm. and he certainly seems to have have uh, read Lord Arthur Savile's crime um, because of that that reference to the Trepoff murders and and Holmes' summons to Odessa. Mm. When Winklecoff is is describing um, his his um, his plots. Uh, there's one point where he, he instanced the case of a barometer that he had once sent to the military governor at Odessa, which, though timed to explode in 10 days, had not done so for something like three months. It was quite true. When it did go off, it merely succeeded in blowing a housemaid to atoms, the governor having gone out of town six weeks before. Uh, but this whole the, the reference to Odessa seems to be the, the, this is where Conan Doyle is almost you know, conflating the actual Vera Zazulich case with this incident from Arthur Savile's crime and putting them both together, mm. you know, mm. possibly subconsciously. Mm. Um, and this might have been picked up later on by John Dixon Carr and Adrian Conan Doyle when they wrote their story, The Adventure of the Seven Clocks, for oh, the exploits yes. of Sherlock Holmes. And the, the, the absurdity of, of um, an exciting Christmas Eve is almost heightened by the fact that Conan Doyle has chosen to set it on Christmas Eve. Yes. A very un-anarchist, un-nihilist sort of date. Um, but, but interestingly, uh, in 1894, um, in the Strand magazine, um, there was a, a translation of a French story called An Anarchist by Eugène Moray, um, which features a Christmas Day anarchist outrage mm. when, when a, a, a party for school children given by a local factory owner is bombed by, a, by an anarchist. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> The children escape. <laughs> oh, thank goodness for that. I, that was going to—we were going to end the podcast on a bit of a downer. Then, <laughs> um, and Conan Doyle would return to the theme of nihilism in um, *The Adventure of the Golden Pince-Nez* in July 1904, in which uh, Holmes is called in to investigate the uh, apparent murder of the secretary of Professor Corum. Uh, Professor Corum turns out to have been. Uh, a member of a nihilist group in 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 Russia some years before, and the events of his past are coming back to haunt him. Uh, but it's a great story. It's one worthy of a, a podcast in itself. And while we're on the topic of Sherlock Holmes, there was a, a good theory put forward by Chris Redmond uh, some years ago in an article called Nihilism, NKVD, and the Napoleon of Crime that suggested that Holmes was party to breaking up a series of nihilist plots and waging war on communism and he cites evidence of nihilism four times in the Sherlock Holmes stories, the, the murder of Count Grafenstein in His Last Bow, the Trepoff murder in Scandal in Bohemia, the statue smashing in uh, The Six Napoleons, and, of course, um, uh, Professor Coram and his uh, his wife in The Golden Pince-Nez. Um, he also makes a sort of <laughs> case for Hure, the boulevard assassin, who's also referred to in gold as another nihilist who might have um, come a cropper at the hands of uh, Sherlock Holmes. And and indeed that um, the corn merchant who appears at the heart of a night among the nihilists may indeed have been Sherlock Holmes in disguise uh, as the prime agent of the story. So all in all, a very unusual story, unusual in tone and unusual in content. Um, what do you uh, what do you make of it, Paul? It's, it's hard to know what to make. I, I certainly enjoy the story. <laughs> um, but... 
it, there is this problem of it not knowing what it wants to be. Mm. Um, it, it would have made a, a, a very good thriller, um, just just told as a straight story. So it is this this comic element is 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 jarring in one way, mm. but it, it's interesting to see how Conan Doyle is is again in touch with what's going on in the culture, and he's actually writing um, on on a theme which which a number of people are picking up on at the time um, mm. and, and making his own comment on it. And, um, uh, and, and interesting that, you know, here he is as a young writer uh, writing a story, which, which then will fit into historically speaking, this, this kind of absurdist um, genre, which, which you know, people of the, the stature of, of, of Wilde and Chesterton are also uh, writing about so it, it's it's a it's a very interesting uh, a very interesting story and and um, I think it does tell you a lot about the young Conan Doyle and, and where he was going with his writing and his thinking. Yes, I think very much so. He's, he's mm. really a, a, a piece of apprentice work as he himself described mm. it, and you can see him experimenting with style and tone. Um, but actually, the pacing of the story very much mirrors later work. Um, mm. It has. There's a certain amount of maturity in that, and I, I I do think it's interesting that this theme of nihilism and anarchism and social revolution does keep coming back time and time again in in Conan Doyle's work. You mm. you know even in even in you know tangential stories like uh, like Danger that we featured in in episode four. You know have the threat of a socialist uprising as a result of the um, food shortages mm. in in Britain and. Um, uh, you know, it, it's a theme that seems to have preoccupied Conan Doyle and something that you can see him returning to time and time again. And it's interesting as well with this particular story, when you look back two years earlier, A Night Among the Nihilists mm. is is very much a standard piece of melodrama. And with An Exciting Christmas Eve, he's he's trying to do something different. You can see he's writing, maturing and moving on. He's not quite got there yet to to the you know the real heights that we will find, particularly in Sherlock Holmes stories. Mm. But it's it's definite progression. Yeah, absolutely. So that brings us to the end of an exciting Christmas Eve. Um, Paul, what have we got next time? Next time we've got Conan Doyle's eighteen ninety one short story, A Straggler of Fifteen, about an, an aged survivor of the Battle of Waterloo, which was then turned into the smash hit play Waterloo, for the actor Henry Irving. Excellent. So that's next time. We'll see you after the holiday season. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And Merry Christmas from us both. Vera Zazulic who on the 24th of January 1878 um, wandered into the, the office of the, uh, the the police chief of St. Petersburg, General Fyodor Fyodor... General Fyodor Fyodor... Hold on. General Fyodor Fyodorovich. Sorry. Hold on. I got this perfectly last night. I was night. going to say, you've been pra- <laughs> I can tell you've been practising this as well. Oh, sorry who on the 24th of January 1878 uh, had wandered into the office of the police chief of St. Petersburg, General Fyodor Fyodor... I'm not going to be able to do it. Anymore. <laughs>